0: Jesus' name, amen. Doesn't it feel good to just take a breath in the presence of God? So much peace, so much life flows if we create the room for God to fill that space in our lives. We're in week two of a brand new sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. We're titling it The Invitation of Jesus. And the idea of this series is that we're looking at these different scenes from the life of Jesus covered by a physician named Luke who's gathered all these eyewitness testimonies and compiled them in a gospel account and in the book of Acts that are really two volumes of the same book. And what we're doing is we're trying to ask the question, what is it that Jesus is inviting us into when he extends the invitation to come and follow him, to experience life as he defines it through his teachings, to understand that he is the one who stands in the gap so that we can have a right relationship with our heavenly father, to understand that life eternally is about knowing him and going deeper into the life he created us for. And I'm believing that if God could just remove the blinders and and get through to us, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, The invitation of Jesus is absolutely irresistible. We got to get out of our own way to actually see it and actually hear it. And last week, I know I say it almost every week. If you missed last week, go back and check it out on the podcast. Go back and check it out on YouTube. But like never before, if you missed last week, you have to go back and check out that sermon. Because that's not just sermon number one in a series of mini sermons that are coming. That's like the starting point that we're going to start every sermon from here on out. So if you missed Jesus' teaching on the parable of the sower, here's what he said. He gave a story, a parable, about four different types of people that are at every church gathering you have ever been at and the four different types of people who are in this room right now because he literally said there's four types of soil that a sower goes out to throw out seed and four soils define four different ways of hearing the word of God. So right now in this room, right now in Birmingham, right now Lake Martin, Huntsville, wherever you're joining us from online, wherever you are, you are one of four people according to Jesus in the profiles he laid out in Luke chapter 8. And while that's scary and a little bit sobering to go, whoa, he summed it all up in four different categories, here's what's more scary, three of them are bad, three of the four like, it's like, number one, yeah, you're not even listening, Satan just snatches you up. Number two, you are listening and you're excited, but then suffering's going to come and you don't really have a root because you're like you're on rocky ground and so you're growing, but it's not really going to last, it's not going to persevere. And then number three, you're on good soil, you're growing, but there's thorns all around you that are eventually going to choke out your growth because you're more concerned about the pleasures of this world, about riches, and about the worries of this life. But the one of the four is good soil. That grows, bears fruit, and produces a crop a hundred times over. And here's what we're saying in this series. God, help me be careful how I listen to your word. I don't want to mistakenly believe that just because something resonates from a sermon or from a time alone with God that it's bearing fruit in my life. And Jesus says at the end of the parable... Be careful how you hear. Take heed how you listen. The whole message of the parable of the sower is not, you're one of four and you can't do anything about it. The whole message is get your heart in a state, get your soul in a state where you're actually receptive to let the word of God do what the word of God does. So the question I have right now is, are you there right now in this moment? Because full disclosure, the most stressful thing about this job every week, and I've never said this publicly, the most stressful thing about preaching every week is getting some of you to care about this stuff. And so I carry that weight, false responsibility, by the way, it's not up to me, but I carry that weight going into preaching every week going, okay, it's not just how do I accurately and correctly teach what God has laid on my heart, it's how do I start this message and deliver this sermon in such a way where the people who don't care start to care. And I'll do anything, I'll get loud, I'll shout, I'll go, that's not really funny. I got to think of something funny. I mean, I'll brainstorm ways. At the beginning of the sermon, say something that resonates with people who could care less so that they actually care. And I felt like God was setting me free of something that has falsely put me in anxiousness for so long. And it's this, Miles, it's not your responsibility to get them to care. It's their responsibility to care about their soul and to make sure the soil that is receiving the word is in a space that can bear fruit. So the question I have right now, did you come here today to pass the time? Did you come here today to maybe hear something that might resonate with your life stage or situation? Did you come here today because you're in pain? And we said last week that pain can actually be the most fertile soil for the word of God to grow. Because if you're hurting right now, you're in a tough season, I don't need to say anything to get your attention. You're already fully tuned in because you need it. What does it look like for us all regardless of our circumstances regardless of our situations to get our hearts in that that place of desperation once again god i I might not be in the most difficult season i've ever been in right now but i need you as bad as i ever have and in this moment you have something new to say to me that's how we're coming before the word of god and we're going to pick up right where we left off last week did you bring your bible to church all of our locations if you have your bible hold it up hold it up high hold it up high Man, It is so good. Who is like really excited about football season? Keep your Bible up. Turn with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. It's like, how honest are we being? Um, I'll tell you, I am excited and I'm hopeful. I'm not excited about five straight games in the month of September. Because you know, in Auburn, Alabama, particularly if, you don't, if you're not lucky enough to have seats on the side that's covered, you know what I'm talking about? Like some of those day games, I mean, it is like you have to wear sunscreen and hydrate and hydrate to actually survive on a Saturday in September at times. So be careful, guys, and make sure your, your heart's in a good place to listen on Sunday based on whatever decisions you make on Saturday. Okay, turn with me. Luke chapter 8. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. We said that the gospel of Luke is written along with Acts to reveal the continued story of redemption from Old Testament to New Testament. So what you're going to see in Luke is references to the people of God, Israel, over and over again. Because he's trying to illustrate, hey, this is all one story. And Jesus, the coming of the kingdom of God, is the culmination of everything up until this point. If you need a title for this sermon, it's called The Word and the Storm. You'll see why in just one second. But we are going to pick up right where we left off last week. Hey, you remember in the sermon, there was that crazy moment where I was like, I thought Jesus was done talking at the end of the parable of the sower, but he actually kept going. Well, guess what? I thought Jesus was done talking after that section about light and fruit bearing and light shining being connected and be careful how you listen. I thought last week was it, but it turns out he's not done yet. The story keeps going and we got more to read. Luke chapter 8, verse 19. If you're there, say I'm there. Now, Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Oh, I, I really thought he was done. But Jesus, and this is a moment where if you don't read the Bible often, you're like, whoa, this is not just a kind and gentle Jewish man. He's got a little bit of an attitude on him. Mom and brothers come to visit with him, and he's he's using them as a sermon illustration. Like, what is happening here? Here's what you need to understand. This scene is also covered in the Gospel of Mark, and Mark gives us more detail, where Mark tells us Jesus' family was seeking along with the Pharisees to rebuke him. They thought our family member, our brother has gone insane. He thinks he's the Messiah and he's teaching these weird stories about seeds and soils. We need to get to him and tell him to be quiet. So don't think Jesus is being mean or standoffish to his family. Some people use this verse to take a break from their family. They're like, even Jesus needed space. And he's like, no, no, no. Jesus knows they're not here because they want to hug me and have a family reunion. They're here because they don't know why I'm going in on the teachings I'm going into, and they actually want to call me away from my purpose. But instead of like confronting them head on, Jesus uses them as an illustration to connect to everything he was just talking about in the parable of the sower. And he goes, oh, I'm glad you brought up my mother and my brothers who are actually here to pull me away, so I'm not going to stop. But now that you brought them up, let let me just say this. If you want to know who's in my family, it's those who hear the word of God and put it into Practice. This whole section is about hearing, and this is the culminating moment where Jesus goes, I don't want you to just be hearers of the word. I want you to be a doer of the word. And this is Jesus' message over and over again in his life way more often than his message is, hey, I came down from heaven to obey God on your behalf. Soon I will die so that whenever you hear about what I have done, You can pray a prayer and believe that I died for you and also that I rose from the dead so that I'll forgive you of your sins and you can go to heaven one day when you die. And once you pray that prayer, you can know with absolute certainty. And if you want bonus points, get baptized. You'll never hear Jesus say that, ever. You know what you'll hear Jesus say repeatedly? Take what I teach and do it. It's making some of you uncomfortable. Because you're going, whoa, this feels like a switch away from the grace of God, away from the finished work of Jesus. No, no, no. we got to see the finished work of Jesus in the grace of God in the context of the story of God where Jesus comes down as a Jewish rabbi with real teachings that he expects real followers to actually abide by. It's not a one-time moment either. The end of the greatest sermon ever preached. I quote this moment all the time because Jesus, when he wants to conclude his epic teaching, leaves The people with this choice. This is Matthew 7. I'll just read it. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into what? Practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. For Jesus, practicing what he teaches is not bonus level Christianity for people who are actually serious about their faith. For Jesus, practicing what he teaches is a non-negotiable for anyone who calls themselves as serious as we're claiming to be as disciples. It's for anyone who goes, I I want Jesus. I want what he did for me. I want his life for my life. And Jesus is going, this is about taking what I teach and putting it into practice. But Jesus does not anticipate, nor is he advocating for A teaching that says, just turn this into a transactional machine where I tell you what to do and you do it. I tell you what to do and you do it. And that's the context of our relationship. Jesus is inviting us into experiencing more of him through obedience and it connects to our daily lives more than we realize. See, when we think about obedience, we think about 10 commandments. We think about what we can do and what we can't do. We think about more morality than anything else, which some of that's good because there's a lot of moral law in the Bible. But what Jesus is inviting us into is not a transaction where we do what he says. It's a relationship where we acknowledge his authority. And it's a relationship where you're going to experience a limited amount of his power and presence if your obedience always goes up a limited amount. And I cannot believe this when I read it. The perfect place where this reality is illustrated is in the very next story after Jesus concludes this teaching in Luke chapter 8. So if we just read... The end of one moment. It's called a chunk in the Gospels. That's what we call it in seminary. Like a chunk is when there's a change in place that some of y'all are laughing, like, I'm not serious. I'm dead serious. That's what we call it. And I didn't realize how uneducated it sounds. It's like, where'd you go to seminary? Um, but it really is. Like when Jesus changes place and pace and there's a totally different scene, the writer is moving you on to something else. But Because of the way Luke compiles his gospel and because of what you're about to read, I do not think it's an accident that Luke places this story as the very next thing that happens. Look at this. In Luke chapter 8, verse 22, it says this. One day, so we're moving on, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water. And they obey him. Now, I know if you've been in church for a while, you've heard this story repeatedly. But just try to see this with fresh eyes right now. Try to see this. Jesus is seeking out to go to the other side of the lake. There's massive importance in that because this is Jesus' ministry spreading to a region that the people of God would normally not be willing to go. We're going to the other side. On the way there, Jesus falls asleep. And it says a squall broke out. This is a storm life-threatening, especially considering the fact that a lot of Jesus' followers were fishermen. They've been in boats. They've been through storms. And the fact that they're afraid for their lives means this is not a little bit of rain. It's not a little bit of lightning. It's not a little bit of wind. This is, we're going to die and this whole boat is going to be split in half. And our rabbi who's done miracles is asleep. Jesus was a heavy sleeper. (laughs) Any heavy sleepers in the room? Any of y'all? Raise your hand. Any light sleepers in the room? Raise your hand. That's amazing how often the light sleeper is married to a heavy sleeper. And then God funny like that? You know what's an underrated, people who are single, you know what's an underrated dating question? Find that out beforehand. Like, ask, ask that question ahead of time. Because I, I am a heavy sleeper, shocker, and, and my wife is a light sleeper. And, and we've had moments, like, still unresolved tension in our marriage. Because I remember when Aniston was born, she's like, crying so loud the night she was born and I am dead asleep my wife can barely move in the bed that she's in like all kind of drugs have gone in and she's like miles can you please I'm dead asleep through the night she's right next to me so I so I and, and we're, we're in counseling and all that's good <laughs> at this point but I, I I'm shocked by how often the two end up together when well, Jesus is a heavy sleeper a life-threatening storm can't wake him up now scholars debate was he really asleep was he was he pretending to be asleep? I think with how much he entrusted his heavenly father, he really was asleep. They wake him up, and for whatever reason, Jesus is in a bad mood. Now, you're, you read into that, and I've heard people teach this. Jesus is upset because he's like, I'm getting my sleep. You should trust me when I'm in the boat. Like, if I'm in the boat, everything's going to be fine. He shuts down the winds and the waves, but he doesn't stop at rebuking creation. He rebukes the disciples, and he says, where is your faith? And on the surface... You look at it and go, I empathize with the disciples. If you're about to die and the one who is the most powerful, the one who's in charge of your crew is sleeping through this moment, you would wake him up too. So what is Jesus pushing them into when he says, where is your faith? And I've heard it argued. Jesus wanted them to understand that if he's in the boat, everything is going to be fine. But you need to understand this. Just because Jesus is in your boat doesn't mean you won't go through a storm. And just because Jesus is in your boat doesn't mean that things won't look like I'm not going to make it through this. The reason why Jesus was so frustrated with the disciples was not because he was in the boat. It was because of what he said before he got into the boat. Pay close attention to this. Go back to the very beginning in verse, uh, what is that, verse 22. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. The moment those words came out of Jesus' mouth, they were already on the other side of the lake. This is how you have to start to think of the Word of God. When Jesus said, Hey, we're going over there, clear direction, that means regardless of what happens between there and here, we're getting there because I said it. The lesson, Where is your faith? is Jesus going, I told you we're going to the other side. Just because what you see doesn't look like what I said, that shouldn't change your response. Your response has to be more tied to my words than it is tied to your circumstances. He's calling them to obey his word. And that's why the story ends with the disciples amazed and marveling at what? The fact that when he speaks, the wind and the waters obey. The whole point of that story is if Creation obeys when Jesus speaks. Why don't you? And why don't I? This is not an invitation into a formula type relationship with God where He says it, I do it. It's no, the Word of God is my lifeline and my peace. And I have to learn to practice obedience to what God says if I want to step into more in my relationship with God. And this is not an option. You know, one of the family members who tried to pull Jesus aside in Luke chapter eight was a guy named James. You know what James' epistle is most known for? This verse, James chapter one, verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And one of the family members who wanted to rebuke Jesus in the situation where he's teaching the parable of the sower heard what he said. You know who my family is? My family is not necessarily who's related to me by blood. My family are all those who take my word and don't just hear it. They apply it and they practice it. ACC, I so desperately want us to be a church that does not sit on the sidelines and acknowledge that the word is good. We will experience a transformation in our lives personally and in our communities and in our families when the word isn't lauded for its content, but it's obeyed and experienced in power. And we got, I did not plan to say this, but this is why I'm doing this message today. We've got a problem right now, and I love what God is doing here, okay? I love that people are being drawn to experiencing the word of God preached just the way it was written. I love that we talk about being the remnant and wanting to create disciples more than we create consumers. But even in our culture at ACC becoming so Jesus-centered and you got to get serious about your faith, even in doing that, it's easy to feel like because that message resonates with you that you're a part of it. But we've got a big problem in that still a a lot of us who come into a space like this spend more time exalting the way I teach than obeying what was taught and experiencing it in your own life. I, I love that you're here. And I love that you might go to lunch and go, that sermon was awesome. What I would rather you do is take it and live it and experience that this God we're talking about is as real and more real than we're even claiming this power is available. This life is yours. God wants to use you. There could be people getting baptized in a couple of months because you're paying attention. The Spirit of God is on the move. That fresh wind we're talking about, it's all around us. But I think we're going to miss it if it's just a glorification of how much the message is resonating and not an understanding that this looks like every single one of us taking the word and going, I'm not just going to be a hearer, I'm going to be a doer Because I love, honor, and serve Jesus. And so look up here, do not miss this. I know, this is another hard teaching, shocking. But the goal of today is not that you feel convicted and leave today with your Bible and go, I'm gonna go home and create a list of things that I'm gonna start doing instead of just reading it. That is not the goal of today. The goal of today is that you would see the connection between your obedience and your heavenly Father's pleasure. This is so key that you understand this. Obeying God is living in the pleasure of God, not living in the effort of self. Here's an illustration. Last week, I told you about my oldest daughter going through what's called restraint collapse, where she's perfect at school, and then she comes home and, whoa! I was going to say Satan get behind me, but I was like, that's too far. Um, But it's close. And so it's like, you're awesome at school, and we heard you're doing great, but then you come home and everything collapses all at once. What is going on? Well, her perfection at school was rewarded because on Friday, I am happy to report to you that Aniston Fidel won student of the month in her class. And yeah, can we show that picture of her? Super proud of her. Yeah, sponsored by Walmart in case you were wondering. Got to get that in there. (laughs) So here's what you don't know about this. The first week of her younger sister's new school Elliot won star student, which was a, a big deal because we knew Aniston was good at school. We were unsure what Elliot was going to do, but it put all this pressure on Aniston to be like, okay, I'm, I'm first four. And so I heard that there's a student of the month at the end of every month. And she knew that Friday at the pep rally, this, this award was going out. And so she told us ahead of time, I'm going to win student of the month. Not. I want to win. I'm going to. She has this drive to win at all costs. I have no idea where it comes from, and I'm like, I, I don't recognize that at all. What is going on? And she's like, I'm going to win. And so we like, I, I've literally sat her down, looked her in the eyes, and said, You have like 20 kids in your class. It, mommy and daddy, you're not going to be disappointed if they call someone else's name. It is okay. It is oh, like we're trying to talk her out of her own perfection right now. But no matter how many times we sat her down and told her, you might not win this, and it's fine. You're good. She wouldn't listen. But not because she wanted to win so bad. It was that she was so sure she was going to. So then she won on Friday. Obviously, she was overjoyed. So I talked to her when she got home, and I was like, did you know, even as they announced it, did you know you were going to win? She was like, yes. And I was like, "What? what makes you know that? What makes you so confident? And I loved her answer. Her answer was, Because I'm a good listener. And I was like, preparing this sermon all about listening and doing. And I'm thinking, I'm like, she's so confident. How is she so confident? It's because Aniston experienced her teacher being pleased by a behavior that she chose. So she knew, because I listen and apply what she says, she's pleased with me. And her confidence in her teacher's pleasure isn't a conditional confidence that you and I would call unfair or wrong. If you look at that and go, is it wrong for her teacher to take more pleasure in her for being obedient, you start making a comparative and you get a little uncomfortable because you're like, well, are you saying that God loves some more who are more obedient? No, God loves us all in Christ based on his obedience. However, the invitation of Jesus was, the Father shows me everything he's doing, and I obey it. I love you the way the Father has loved me, meaning I show you everything that I'm doing, and you obey it. God's pleasure over your life is connected to your willingness to obey. And there is something to be said for a child of God who decides, I'm not going to be a flippant hearer of the word of God, but I'm actually going to apply this and obey. And when you know that you're living a life pleasing to God, it changes the game of your confidence, and it changes the game of your relationship with God. Here's here's the whole sermon in one line. A life pleasing to God is a life obedient to his word. You want to live a life pleasing to God? Obey what he says. But you have to resist feeling like this is a systemic machine where you put out obedience and God returns love. This is an invitation to trust his heart. So we don't obey the Bible because we trust God's content. Like, you know what? He's a really good teacher. I think this stuff is, I think this stuff is legit. I think it works. We trust his content because we trust his heart. So when you obey God, do you wanna know what you're communicating to God? You're communicating, I believe that you're telling me the truth. I believe that your way is better than every other option. And I believe that what you want from me, even when it looks like the other offer gives me more life, even when it looks like the other offer would be easier, when we, by obedience, say to God, I trust you at your word with a lifestyle of obedience, we are saying, you love me, you know what's best, I submit to your ways. And some of you who the entire battle of your relationship with God is I do the wrong thing and then I come back to Him because His grace and His love is so unconditional and it's powerful and I love the mercy of God. I love the patience of God. Listen, I have been there and you will have more days than not where you have got to wake up and that's your first pursuit. But I also have started to taste a little bit of what's on the other side of active obedience. And it's not self-reliance and confidence of, I know God loves me because I've been doing the right thing. It's a, I'm enjoying God and he's enjoying me and this is the way this was supposed to be. The whole sermon ended last week with, we want you to desire God more than you desire sin. You will not desire God more than sin if all you do is choose sin and apologize after. You will desire God more when you obey and find out this is where life is. This is where hope is. This is where fulfillment is. This is where passion is. This is where I want to be. Because all you'll have on the other side is half the gospel. You'll have forgiveness. You'll have grace. You'll have mercy. His heart will be for you. But there will be a part of you that goes, you know what? I'm so tired of just doing it wrong and apologizing. Because when you do that, here's the thing. You're not adding anything to the price Jesus paid for you. That's paid once and for all. When you do that, all you're doing is adding the consequences to your own life. All you're doing is making yourself more lonely, more depressed, more isolated, more enchained. And God's going, no, I'm, I'm, I'm taking the chains off. And the chains get unlocked through active obedience fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit. So to close this sermon, I have three of the most simple questions I have ever put in front of our church that are going to connect obeying God to knowing him personally and intimately. And I hope for some of you that a light bulb goes off of, this is what I have been missing, taking God at his word. Question number one, and I want you to think deeply about each one of these. Question number one, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? And I don't mean The Southern Baptists. hey, do you know, do you know you're going to heaven? Do you know Jesus? Like, have you prayed the sinner's prayer? That's great. It's not what I'm talking about. I mean, like, do you know him deeply, intimately, and personally? Because when Jesus defined eternal life in John chapter 17, the night before he died, he said, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God deeply is the open invitation for any Christian who willingly surrenders their life to Jesus. And I want to ask the question and maybe even push the agenda of you will know him to the degree that you listen to him. And knowing him deeper and more intimately happens on the other side of going on the journey with him. So if you're here today and you're going, I don't know anything this guy's talking about, but I am like so curious about my faith and I want to know what some of these people are singing confidently about, there is such a simple prayer that God will answer every single time. It goes like this, God, I want to know you. If you pray that prayer, you have a guaranteed yes from the God of the universe or pray it and see what happens because if nothing happens, everything I'm claiming is a sham But if you go before the God of the universe with a contrite heart going, God, everybody else seems to know you. Everybody else seems to experience you. But this feels like some kind of inertia that's elsewhere in my life. And I want it in my heart, in my mind personally. God, I want to know you intimately. You invite him into that. I promise he will meet you there. You were created by God for deep communion with Jesus. When you find out that what God wanted from you all along was not your rigid discipline, but just to take you on a walk, it changes the way you worship. So you're going, do, do what he says, got it. What does he say? Come know me. Come be with me. Come experience life as I created it. Come and listen to me. Come get away with me. Come take a rest, a real rest, like for your soul. Let me carry the weight of the world. See, you'll find out the more you know Jesus, that he's not a rigid commander with a to-do list. He's a gentle and lowly demonstration of the love of the Father, inviting you into his embrace to tell you, this is where life is. You are mine, I love you so much. And the embrace of God telling you he loves you. It's so great when you're stuck in sin and you need grace one more time, it is. He's so awesome, he's so patient. But can I just tell you, it gets even better if you listen to what he says and do it. You can know him intimately, deeply, and personally. Number two, do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? And before you respond with the obvious yes, the two markers of love are delight and sacrifice. Do you enjoy him? And what are you willing to give up? You can always tell what someone loves by what they're willing to give up for that. That's why the ultimate demonstration of the love of God is the sacrifice of Jesus. But when we think about love, we have to create a compartment in our head for obedience, not just forgiveness. Do you love Jesus? Yeah, he loves me. He washes me clean. He gives me new life in the Father. He's the best. Okay. But when he was around, he said, if you love me, obey my commands. You know, this is so deep and going to rock some of your worlds, but I'm, I'm so excited for some of you to get this. You know when Jesus outlined why the Father loves him? He named out what sounds like the most conditional love of all time. John 5, he says, John 5, 20, the Father loves me and shows me everything he's doing. John 15, he expounds on that, and he basically says, here's what's happening within the Trinity. The Father comes up with the plan, and I do it. And he loves me because I do it, And I love him because he creates the plan. Now you hear that and you go, what? This is is how this works? And then Jesus says, as he loves me, I have loved you. And then he says, as I have loved the Father, that should be your response. How did Jesus love the Father? Obeying his word. So do you love Jesus is really a question of whether or not affection has become Devotion. It's one thing to have affection for God, and if I've ever seen affection for God, I saw it on Thursday night. We had a stage right here. It was about 1,500 people in this room, and that's against all kinds of codes and laws, but um, the city of Auburn, we love you, and I'm so sorry there were cars everywhere, but it was it was insane. It was It was deep affection for God, and affection is supposed to be there. You should always stir up emotion to connect you with God. Don't apologize for doing that. Don't feel like a second-class Christian because you care about how you feel. God wants you to stir up emotion for him. Don't believe this lie of rigid Christianity. It's It's just dogmatic obedience regardless of what you feel. No, God goes, stir up some affection, sing some songs, get your heart in a position to know me and feel me and experience me. But affection, devoid of devotion, is the soil on rocky ground. It will always wither away. It will never persevere under trial because you will not feel it when you lose that person close to you and you will not feel like worshiping when you feel more alone and lonely than you ever have before. But the question is, has my affection for God been combined with devotion to do what he says? And then maybe obedience could look like worship just as much as singing. I obey God And that is my worship just as much as shouting what a beautiful name at the top of my lungs. And you want to know what God says in the Old Testament? He says, that's the type of worship I desire. I want a soft heart ready to listen to what I say and do it. So the question, do you know Jesus? Do you know him intimately? Do you love Jesus? And number three, do you trust Jesus? Do you trust Jesus? And before you like... Answer that out loud. The answer is your lifestyle. The disciples would have said, yes, we trust Jesus. We left everything to follow him. But then a storm hit and exposed the condition of their hearts. That you trust him to the degree that things look the way you expected them to look. But as soon as things didn't look the way you expected them to look, you forgot about what he said. Your trust is directly connected to his word. And so the question becomes, is Has my trust created a repentance and a giving up of my illusion of control over my life and said, Jesus, you can have it all, my reputation, my stuff, my future, my plans. And there are Christians within the sound of my voice who today, this simple message with these three questions that we would all assume we know the answer to is an invitation to repent. And give trust back where it should have been all along. Go, God, I don't want to just be a hearer. I want to be good soil. I want to be a doer. And I want to live my life for your glory. But I, for the first time in a while, felt so strongly that this message was more for the salvation of a few. Not that my message saves anybody. Jesus saves. But some of you are here. And you have never trusted Jesus with every fiber of your being for the first time. You have never said, Jesus, I give you my life. I wanna follow you. I trust you. I wanna live according to your word. It won't be perfect, but you are my God. I am a Christian. If I haven't, I'm getting baptized and I'm going unashamed, fully committed into the kingdom of God. And if you're here and you're going, I wanna know Jesus. I do love him and I'm ready to trust him. Today is your day to say yes. Today is your day to go, I wanna be a disciple. I'm following him. You can get out your communion sets right now. If you didn't get one on the way in, you can just raise your hand. Someone from our team will bring them around. But this is a moment for people who don't know Jesus to say yes for the first time, and people who do to repent of an illusion of control. If you didn't get one, like I said, just raise your hand. They'll bring them around to you real quick. You know what we're doing when we take communion? We're remembering the body and the blood. We remember every week that Jesus bled and died, giving his life for our healing. Your cross, my freedom. God, thank you that we're forgiven. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. And by taking communion today, this is what's so cool. I could do a prayer to receive Christ. And I do hope you pray. I could tell you to sign up to get baptized. But if you just became a Christian by going, I trust Jesus, I want you to take communion as a believer for the first time. And I want you to go, whoa, he died so that I might have life. And as the elements physically go into your body, I want you to know that spiritually speaking, the Holy Spirit is filling you with new life. You are going to heaven. You are risen from the dead. And the Spirit of God has awakened in you participation into the kingdom of God. So let's do this together and just believe that God's going to breathe on this moment and bring some breakthrough to some people. Husbands, pray over your wives. Let's enjoy this moment, and then we'll come right back and sing.